I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the social index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Michael Diamond. He's the academic director and clinical assistant professor for integrated marketing communications at the New York University School of Professional Studies. And on the show today, we talk about his unique background. He's been a CMO before at Time Warner Cable before ultimately ending up back in academia. But before that, in strategy consulting and strategy functions within corporate America. And before that, he spent and started his career in the theater world, which is an interesting twist. And we talk about a little bit on the show. The most important part of this conversation is that New York University School of Professional Studies is launching a new executive master's of science degree program. And we spend quite a bit of time talking about that, what's driving the curriculum, his wonderful advisory board of the who's who of the industry and much, much more. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Michael Diamond. Well, Michael, welcome to the show. My pleasure. I'm excited to have this conversation. Uh, Before we get too started, though, as I was looking at your background, you definitely, I mean, you've been in the theater, you've been in business, you've got this whole left, right, 
brain thing going. Tell me more about that. Yeah, well, I, I think I've probably been battling this left brain, right brain, brain thing my whole life. You know, I probably wasn't ever quite adept enough to be a true scientist and really veer towards the arts, the world of poetry and literature and, and what have you. But I, I was kind of grounded enough to realize there was probably a bit more to life than, you know, staring off in the clouds and contemplating my navel, as they say in England. But, but I think those two things didn't quite start coming together until my sort of maybe late 30s or yeah, late 20s, early 30s, probably. And which was after some time as a magical song. But, you know, I think there's a funny story about that, which is I got utterly obsessed with data visualization and information design and not just sort of like casually interested, but somehow these worlds of, you know, art and science or math and illustration kind of came together. And I started buying up basically every single book I could find on the subject. And I would claim I, at one point, I had the largest private collection of books on the topic on the East Coast. And it got so bad that I actually had to rent a storage unit near my house just to keep this collection growing until my wife finally talked some sense in to me. So that that's this, uh, you know, kind of geeky and arty side that sort of has come together on many occasions in my life. So. Well, that's fascinating. Uh, well, let's talk, let's talk about your career journey because it is, it's different than a lot of people have had on here. Tell me what were the major stops along the way, if you don't mind? Yeah, well, it felt to me for a long time, it was my career was dominated by academia, which is of course ironic because I've come back to that world. But, you know, I think in my first, uh, what would it be, 10 years of adulthood, I think I spent more time in university than not. I, I ran into uh, this uh, young man in London once and I, we were talking about, you know, what we were both doing. And, and I told him about all these degrees I had. And he, he said, oh, you're like my mom. You have more degrees than a thermometer, which I thought was a great line. And I think I enjoyed the academic world. But I think when I was growing up in London, you know, I'm a product of uh, suburban London. I certainly didn't dream of becoming a professor or, or working for a Fortune 500 company as I, as I ultimately did. But I definitely was always really obsessed with sort of the written and the spoken word. And I was really fascinated, I remember from a very early age, by the idea that language could create something beautiful like a poem, or it could engage your emotions like a play, or we had a lot of this in the UK with political debate that the outcomes of our political life could be influenced by something like a debate in parliament. And it definitely came from a family that had lots of sort of theater people and were active in that and amateur dramatic. So, so it was kind of a natural step first to study English at Oxford. I was lucky to win a place at St. John's College to study English there. I uh, had a fabulous three years, really got into the theater, you know, both first from reading a lot of drama, but then a ton of very bad acting at college and directing some plays. And I directed a play that went on to the um, sort of the fringe in, in London, which was a lot of fun. And so I ended up deciding, all right, well, I'd like to go to Yale and study theater management. So that that sort of career took me to Yale and theater management. And I got into nonprofit arts administration. That was really probably my first, you know, paying gig was running theaters, raising money for theaters. And a lot of what I was doing, I sort of considered marketing to some extent. I didn't sort of know to call it that at that time, but I was doing a lot of fundraising and direct mail fundraising and, um, you know, writing grants and positioning and all sorts of there. And I really enjoyed it. And I sort of started to recognize that there probably was something of a science to marketing or a science to business more generally. And it wasn't all just guesswork. And that intrigued me enough that when I was back in London, so I worked in, in New York 
after Yale for a couple of years and then went back to London. I thought maybe, you know, I should do an MBA and, and that's a great kind of pivot point. And, and that would give me a chance to explore the science of business a bit more. And I, whilst I was doing my MBA, I really took to strategy and marketing. Those were the things that I you know, really enjoyed doing. There were some great professors there, Paddy Barwise, who was teaching marketing, and Gary Hamill, who was teaching strategy, and a number of others. And I was sort of very lucky to get one of those coveted spots as an intern at a big strategic consulting firm. Uh, in my case, I worked for Booz Allen. And they had this fantastic media and entertainment practice, both in Europe and in America, yeah, based in New York. And I didn't know any of this at the time, but you know, many of the colleagues, when I was working at a, as a sort of junior, you know, entry level post MBA consultant there, would turn out to be very accomplished people. So I was rubbing shoulders with people like Mark Reed, you know, went on to lead WPP. Um, Bob Backish was, I think, already a junior partner then. He's, you know, as you guys know, he runs Paramount now, President CEO of Paramount. Christian Butia was 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 a colleague of mine, obviously president, I think, uh, of NBC Universal Advertising. So, you know, there's some really high octane, smart and accomplished people there. And and it was a great atmosphere to work in. And I loved the kind of core work of strategy consulting, but obviously I didn't like the crazy hours and the travel. So, you know, the next window to open was I got this sort of random call from Time Warner who were looking to sort of build or form a new strategy group and asked me if I'd join uh, as, a, you know, as an associate director of strategy or something. And it, it was really probably the right time for me to move to the client side, so-called. So that that took me to Time Warner. You know, I can go on from there. There was 20 extremely good years, uh, I have to say, uh, with a chance mostly, I think, marked by working with very fascinating visionary people like Jerry Levin and Dick Parsons and Jeff Bucus and Steve Case. And ultimately, I ended up serving as a chief of staff to this wonderful man called Don Logan, who you may remember, or many of your listeners remember, was the CEO of Time Inc. for many years. And at one point, he served as the co-chief COO of Time Warner, the whole company, and I was his chief of staff. And Amazing experiences, just amazing experiences, um, you know, learning about business and how senior leaders go about their day and stuff. So. Well, and I, I know you, I think your last uh, post there was uh, as CMO or interim CMO of, of Time Warner Cable, if I'm not mistaken. Yep, correct. How did you end up from there into academia and what you're doing at NYU? Yeah, I mean, joining Time Warner Cable was very much a sort of fulfillment of what I had wanted to do. I, w I had been a corporate guy for a long time and I loved it. You know, I, I ran international strategy. I flew around the world and did fun things and brought people together. But I realized I never sort of had my hands on the, you know, the real levers and operations of the business. So moving to Time Warner Cable was all about, you know, how to get much deeper experience uh, in one of the operating businesses. And it was a fantastic place to work and to learn. And as you said, ultimately, I, I sort of went through the ranks of strategy and research and insights, and I got growth marketing, and then I added pricing, et cetera. And I was ultimately asked to step in as the CMO whilst the company was going through its, it was being purchased at first by Comcast, that fell through, and then, and then by Charter. So I, I was the CMO the last couple of, I think, two, two and a half years, whatever, of that transition, which was, you know, in itself a challenge, but it was a wonderful experience to lead and grow a team and kind of deliver. I think we had our very best year, the last year, the company was an independent company. But at the end of that, which was almost 20 years of working at Time Warner, you know, I had an opportunity 
afforded by you know the arrangements uh, they had for executives to sort of take a couple of years off. And and it was a great chance to say, all right, well, what do I really want to do? You know, and I, I spent some time sailing and learning tennis, and you know, but I was clearly a bit too bit too young to retire. And so I thought, you know, I I I thought teaching was something I would really enjoy. And and it was a way to contribute and give back. And I had and I had done some teaching along the way at Yale and a couple of other places. So I, I decided to take that more seriously. I got a lot of training, um, worked at Baruch for a semester teaching marketing to all the executive MBAs. And then when the NYU sort of position came open, it seemed like the absolutely perfect move for me because it was very much this school of professional studies that I work at, where I run the marketing and PR programs, they, it's very much about an applied professional education. You know, it's very much about uh, how do we use academic rigor and but match theory and practice together, you know, so, so that seemed the perfect place for me. Well, and you guys, I mean, if I've got my numbers right, I think uh, the NYC School of Professional Studies is more than 200 adjunct faculty members, something like that, alongside the full-time faculty. Yeah, yeah, that, and that's just in my program. Yes, we, we yeah, I think probably in the school there's probably between 800 and 1,000 faculty totally. But, but uh, you know, in my in my program, there's probably between two, 200, 250, depending on the semester, depending on the needs, but about 250 adjunct faculty. And we're, we're serving about 1,300, 1,500 graduate students in those two, those two programs. So there's a, a graduate program is, we call the Masters of Science in Integrated Marketing, and then another one, which is the Master of Science in PR and Corporate Communication. And between those two programs, there's about 1,300, 1,400 graduate students, on top of which we run a bunch of certificates, which are phenomenal. We launched one in healthcare marketing and communications that's been really popular. We launched a, a wonderful certificate with the ARF in marketing optimization and insights. So that adds another two or 300 students on top of that. So I think, Alan, and I'm sure someone's going to correct me here, but I think we are possibly the largest graduate program that's dedicated to marketing in the US. So I think I don't know of any programs bigger. I mean, I think there may be some MBA programs, you know, with concentrations in marketing, but I'm not aware of any program, certainly one of the quality and, and rigor that we provide that has that kind of scale. So. Yeah, I'm not aware of one either. So I'll give it to you. You're the <laughs> you're the largest. <laughs> well, I know. So you've, you described the two masters of science degrees that you have now, but you're actually also launching a new executive program for marketing and strategic strategic communications. Tell me a little bit more about that. Like and and why why launch that? Yeah, well, it's interesting because I think it both comes out of the ethos of the school itself and it also I'd like to believe is very responsive to what we see in the marketplace. So the school of professional studies about 90 years old and they have had a long history of sort of providing access and opportunity and, and serving sort of new new populations. And recently under our new dean, Angie Kamath, we've really dedicated ourselves to, to three things. One is a focus on the future of work. So what what you know what does the future of the workforce look like, the workplace, et cetera. Second is creating a sort of a lifetime community of, of learners. So tr really trying to understand what does that mean over a lifetime to be engaged with NYU SBS in, in learning. And third, 
to build these very immersive experiences for students. So, so very much the philosophy of the school is about these transformative uh, learning experiences. And then as we looked at kind of typical marketing portfolio, sort of brand portfolio, when we looked at the courses we currently offered, our programs, our two main programs skew a little bit to younger emerging professionals. And we felt quite strongly that there was an opportunity to build something for folks who are a bit further into their career, maybe eight, 10, 12 you know, years into their career, where they're facing a whole different set of challenges and opportunities. So coming out of that and a lot of very deep and healthy conversations with CMOs and CCOs, we've developed this this new executive masters in marketing and strategic communications. Well, and I know I, the work I did with the CMO club a couple of years back, but we surveyed CMOs and, and one of the questions we asked uh, was around their pipeline of talent and you know how many of them had somebody that could step into their role if you know they got hit by the proverbial bus, right? And unheard of like 60%, over 60% didn't have anyone that could actually step into that CMO role. And so like kudos to you too, because there's definitely a need for education, for leadership training, all kinds of aspects of like how to be a executive marketer. And there's not to your point, like I don't know of another executive oriented degree program for marketing. Yeah, and you get there's some wonderful, you know, sort of more focused certificates in digital or or things like that. But there's there's nothing that sort of would give you at an executive level a degree, and importantly, a degree that combines marketing and PR or you know strategic strategic communications. And I think that's, you know, that's one of its unique attributes. You know, our sense is that you know there are probably you know three or four major forces that are reshaping the role of the CMO and while the basic tenets and goals of marketing may not have changed very much, I think the job of the CMO or the CCO even has become significantly more complicated and, and at the same time, probably more vital even to the future growth of business. And, and, and frankly, I would like to believe society and culture a bit more broadly. And I think that in these situations, people need to step back and they need to sort of invest in their education and their, their training and they need to upskill and they need to evaluate what new tools they need, what range of activities they're going to have to orchestrate, what publics and constituencies they're going to have to take into consideration. There's a lot of rethinking the role of, of, of marketing and, and PR today. And, and, and so we really felt it was a great opportunity for people who were already on a path to the C-suite. You know, they, these are accomplished people who have demonstrated, you know, a lot of the capacity to create value from marketing and PR, but they, they're looking for something else or they're looking to expand their portfolio or they want to be more ready for the C-suite, that, that sort of profile of, of student. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So tell me a little bit more about the curriculum that you're teaching as well. Yeah, well, the curriculum, maybe it's sort of probably as context and maybe your listeners you know have a different list that they would they would put here but as context the sort of forces that we think are reshaping the role are really four i mean we talk about four and you'll see that the course to some extent is sort of the program to some extent is built coming out of that number one is globalization at nyu we're almost uniquely positioned it's such a global uh, and diverse university that you you see this every day you know it's it's a it's a wonderful experience to be a faculty member at a school with with that level of global and domestic diversity but for marketers i think and and, and communications folks globalization has to mean something much more than just you know new export led growth take your brand and sell it overseas you know which has traditionally been the case for many years and we look and we spend a lot of time looking at china latin america other places is, you know, it's it's a place where you're getting all sorts of it's a source of innovation. It's a source of new talent. It's a source of creativity. It's also, you know, a place where uh, there's a lot of influencing. Uh, reputations can be built, but they can also be damaged, you know, outside the U.S. And so, this interaction that we all have with environments outside our home markets, I think, is is something very critical to explore. Mark Pritchard was on record about China. I think uh, earlier in the year or last year, saying, you know, if you want to see the future, look to China, which I thought was a fascinating comment and, and and one I agree with. So so that whole space around globalization and what that's done. The second, and everybody has their own formula of these words, but we're talking about digital and data. And I think once you once you see you know, the power of what happens when you marry sort of algorithms with some of the more traditional arts of creativity and persuasion, you know, when you see what that can do to redefine the efforts of marketers and communicators to personalize and target and, you know, and at the same time, frankly, elevate the whole conversation. You know, when you, when you see that going on, many of us, I think, see that happening rapidly. They see this kind of like miasma of technology and word salads and regulation and all sorts of things, you know, and then they really are pushing themselves to say, all right, what, how do I sort the wheat from the chaff here and, and, and figure out what's important? So that, that's a key pillar. The third area, you know, that we'll cover in some depth is around um, things like ethics, more broadly trust, corporate reputation, you know, the role of purpose. That's obviously, you know, not just on the on the lips of pundits, but it's been clearly demonstrated that, you know, companies with greater a, a greater sense of purpose and whether you define that as just, you know, a raison d'etre of being, which I think is essentially what Jim Stengel means when he talks about purposes, you know, like why do you exist or whether you define it all the way to, you know, are you a social activist and do you take up various causes? But, you know, however you define those things, clearly that sense of purpose and, and the sense of trust you build through your actions, you know, words and actions has become much more critical for marketers and, and, and communicators to understand. And so, you know, we're, we're looking at, you know, how how marketing and PR are redefining themselves in, in that context. And then finally, which I think perhaps doesn't get as much play in other places, but we have a great opportunity to explore this, is the idea of both marketing and PR, the integration of those two things. Most obvious example being social media, you know, there's always some kind of turf war between marketing and PR about who owns social media, you know. But more generally, all of us operating in this world understand that consumers don't really see 
these boundaries, you know, uh, or, or, or stakeholders more broadly, they just see a whole series of different touch points with the brand and they don't care whether it came from the PR person or the marketing person. But those things clearly need to be much better coordinated and integrated and orchestrated. And so we're looking at that. We're looking at what, what are these new sort of hybrid roles of growth officer or experience officer? What does that look like as well? I really like, I mean, I like all of these trends, of course, but and I, I agree that these are driving and shaping the role going forward. And the role, you highlighted this, but the role is like no other in the C-suite. Like every CMO role is a unique snowflake. <laughs> and I, I think that puts an added pressure on the person in that role to think more strategically than even their other C-suite peers. That's my assertion. Because you know a balance sheet for the CFO has been a balance sheet for decades, right? And hasn't really changed, but the pathways to market, how consumers are consuming content, consuming goods changes a lot. And marketers have to adjust and and be flexible with that. But the last point around the integration of marketing and PR, I really like because I've seen way too many organizations have those silos that you (laughs) alluded to. And just simple things like activating a sponsorship that the marketing department paid for and put in place. And because of that wall, not getting truly earned media or the eyeballs that it deserves out in the marketplace because they're just not working with their communications colleagues. Like that that kind of stuff should not happen. I think there's also, you know, I'm, a, I'm someone who's come to the equation from the marketing side, but, you know, lead both programs in both areas and work with some very accomplished PR executives. But I think there's a lot that marketing can learn from PR as well. And I think that that's, there's clearly sort of perhaps a bit more anxiety on the PR side because the marketing folks have the bigger budgets and, you know, can show typically a bit more direct measurability in their activities. But I think when you get down to some of the core competencies that are going to be need for this next generation of marketers, a lot of them feel like skill sets that actually have already been very well developed among PR, very competent PR executives. So, you know, the idea of you know, examining that I think is is very important as well. Totally agree. And I, I would I would put a fine point on it to say that they understand the so what, right? Like, like why is this important? Uh, marketers, and I put myself in this camp, we can get enamored with our own marketing thinking. <laughs> but if you're trying to create buzz, create people, opportunities for your brand to get talked about by others. I totally agree. Communications people understand that mentality more than anyone. Well, and it may even go, you know, beyond buzz. It it really is. I I think PR folks have this notion of publics and also, you know, getting to real issues that matter. And that idea, I think, of of getting down to sort of some more fundamental stories or, um, you know, is something which, I mean, obviously marketers explore those things great brands are built on those things. But but I do think there's a lot of wisdom in the way uh, public relations has kind of curated those conversations without necessarily having anything to sell, you know, so it was a, it, w- it was just a different, it was a different approach. So, uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot to learn. So. Well, and I, I, just to add on, not to keep adding on, but like, you know, marketers, we can buy our way, right? And, and I think the, uh, a pathway to buying your own way is, getting shorter and shorter, right? Meaning like it's that much harder to buy your way there. And I think the communications backgrounds, the training, the experiences that they come to the table with is pretty interesting, especially in this day and time where 
those opportunities to buy your way there are evaporating, essentially. Yeah. Well, I have to complete your sentence because the opposite of buying your way is to earn your way, you know. So, and I think that's always, you know, that distinction between earned and paid media has existed obviously for a long time. But, you know, I think that's some of the lessons. I mean, one of the things I, I find so fascinating, we talked a decent amount of this. I was, I'm not the, definitely not the first to say it because I must have read it somewhere, but this idea of shifting from value to values, you know. So this idea, you know, that marketing was always rooted in this, I mean, classically in this idea of a value exchange. You know, we create and communicate something of value for a consumer and then we capture that somehow in the price we charge. But, you know, I think what PR understood for, for a long time is that publics, as, as the PR folks call them more broadly, needs brands that are align around their values and that companies that stand for something, you know, that's beyond just delivering on the basic product and even emotional benefits, you know, consumers are more and more oriented around these very deep perceptions of how companies show up in the world and, and authenticity and trust and purpose, et cetera. So, you know, those are those are things which I think the PR folks uh, perhaps have given a more concrete or explicit, they've spent time in that space, you know, so there's a lot to learn. Well, I really like the idea of the program and, and I was looking at the site uh, earlier and man, have you built an impressive faculty and advisory council for this program. I mean, one, I, I just know, want to know how that all came together. Uh, I've met or interviewed a several of them, um, like Mark Deswan Ahrens, Antonio Lucio, Dow Bergsma. I've met or, or interviewed a couple of those folks, but there's a longer list. How'd that all come about? I mean, they're, they're the who's who. Yeah. Well, you know, it's just been so wonderful to know that many leading marketing and communications leaders, frankly, people I respect and admire for how they've gone about building brands and injecting humanity and ethics into what they do and, you know, elevating the role of our industry. You know, really the legends and the lines of our industry that when we talk to folks about what we're trying to do at the School of Professional Studies in this domain of marketing and, and PR, especially about this new executive master's uh, program, you know, they instantly get it. You know, they understand, they've been supportive and they've all said, we want to be part of this. How how can we support you? How can we contribute content, thoughts, connections, things like that? So it has been a, a wonderful uh, you know, experience to have folks of that caliber engage with us, uh, you know, and uh, you know, the, the list, you know, the list goes on. Stefan Gans, who's the chief insights and analytics officer at PepsiCo, will be guest lecturing and teaching. Alice Fournier from WD40 is going to join us. Kristen Legri Williams uh, from Optimizely, who's a wonderful colleague I got got to know through some programs I was teaching on. And then we already actually had a, a, a an advisory board for what is essentially kind of an emerging center for the transformation of marketing and PR that we've been working on that included people like um, Javier Meza from Coca-Cola and Catherine Metcalf from C. CVS, who's a CCO, Rashad Tabakawala, who's, you know, probably one of the smartest guys you'll meet. So, you know, really good folks. Anna Maria DeSalva over at Hill and Knowlton, Judith Harrison from Weber Shandwick. And these folks, Lydia Lee, who also was at Weber Shandwick, is a really extraordinary uh, thinker, uh, was CTO, I think, of Weber Shandwick and, and global head of China. Jim Joseph, who's on our faculty, who's uh, over at IPG Health now. Louisa Wong at Wavemaker. is a chap called Yanis Kotsiagoridis, who's the charge of all the data and intelligence at Edelman. You know, and all of them, I think, you know, and they all come from these very different kind of backgrounds and perspectives, but all of them have recognized what we're trying to do and, and I, I think uh, hopefully bought into 
supporting us and, and trying to get this uh, new executive master's launch. So it's awesome. I have a, one more question for you before we switch over uh, and switch gears is as you think about the CMO role or even the chief growth officer role today, like what do you, what do you believe it takes to be successful? Well, I think a lot of what it will take to be successful perhaps is, is that capacity to master the things we were talking about, but maybe the four or five I would highlight is I do think this idea of integration, or you might call it orchestration, or that idea which probably manifests in two ways. One is the idea of building these seamless experiences for consumers and figuring out how to do that so that you can sort of deliver you know, all of the touch points and the capabilities of the company in, in a seamless way. But also the idea of how these, how you integrate functions and practices and, and disciplines, you know, that, that you, you mentioned the word around you know, silos and, you know, they just sort of, I mean, I've worked in large companies and, and, and even against your best efforts, they just sort of emerge. So I think the highly, highly successful growth offers are the ones who can sort of both integrate the consumer experience, but then also deliver, you know, the functional responsibilities in some kind of orchestrated way. Clearly technology, I mean, no marketer or communications officer today can avoid understanding the full impact of how pervasive and boundary shifting and, you know, that technology has become. I, I don't know if it was in your CMO club survey, but I remember a similar survey at the time that said, you know, that I think many CMOs spend more money on technology today than the CTO. So just can't see a world in which without making a case for technology versus creativity or anything like that. But a CMO or a chief growth officer has to understand how technology will play a transformative role. And then I think perhaps the last, and I'm, I'm sort of abbreviating perhaps, I'd add like revenue and growth together, yes? Meaning that to me was part of the problematic with CMOs and everybody reads the the reports, you know, from Spencer Stewart. And I think it's, you know, Antonio Lucio is always very quick. I, I heard him recently at the one of those marketing awards and he was, you know, first words out of his mouth were, you know, why are we all beating ourselves up about the death of marketing? And, you know, he said, you know, not, not at all. You know, we have this extraordinarily important role to play, et cetera. But so I'm not bemoaning the death of marketing in any way, but I do think marketers got either a little distracted with digital, which was very important and it drove growth and it drove measurable results, et cetera. But maybe they lost some of their, you know, more traditional purview around brand and thought leadership and sort of broad, broader things. And then I also think, and we try very, very hard in all of our programs, that sometimes marketers get a bad rap that they don't understand the language of business. You know, So really, literally the nuts and bolts, the P&L, what's on the CEO's mind, what, what does you know, she or he really feel are important and what are the levers of growth, et cetera. And you know, so I think, I think you're beginning to see various different folks emerge who demonstrably have those kind of skills together. But that's something perhaps new for marketers, certainly marketers who came more from a more traditional creative or Marcom's Marcom's background. background so. That's a great list. And um, for those that are listening, you should be taking notes. <laughs> things, things to go shore up on. One of the things we like to do is kind of switch gears and get to know you a little bit better. Uh, we know you have this theater background, but I'm, I'm curious 
and I want to ask you my favorite question to ask everyone that comes on. Has there been an experience of your past that defines and makes up who you are? Today. Well, hard to limit me to one experience, I guess. So I, 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 you know, that's a great question. I'll probably, I'll probably have to give you more than one. But number one, I'd say was probably my upbringing. You know, my, my parents, and you know, it sounds a bit corny. Everybody thanks their parents, but my parents, Andrew and Tony Diamond, they were, are, are extraordinarily hardworking people. You know, and they always instilled in me a belief that a, it was important to do your best. And B, that it was important to share your gifts, you know, serve the community around you and things like that. You know, that was just a very foundational part of my upbringing. And it, and it defined it defined me, you know, there's no question it did. I think the second has been work partnerships. And I've been really lucky to work with and for and, you know, alongside some extraordinary people who've, you know, taught me life lessons in a sense. I, I mentioned Don Logan before. One of the things that, and I've shared this in other forums, but he, you know, he really taught me this idea of speaking truth to power and, you know, sort of trusting yourself and, and this belief that if you don't do it, who's going to do it? You know, there's some, there's some wisdom in, in being able to work with people who have, can instill that kind of confidence in you. Obviously, you've got to moderate it. Friendships, I, you know, I, I have a wonderful set of friends from, you know, all around the world now. And, you know, candidly, one of the most important things they do for me is to burst my balloon. You know, I mean, they're, they're, you know, I don't know if that's a very English tradition, but they're more likely, you know, cutting me down to size than, than in any way build, building me up. But, but I think that's important. I benefited from a wonderful education. I mean, it sounds braggy when you say it, but, you know, I was an undergrad at Oxford, a grad grad degree from Yale. You know, these are wonderful places if you're intellectually curious and you want to explore and they're about rewarding excellence and things like that. So that's a good, those are good, healthy experiences for me. I, I sort of came out of them unscathed, I think. And then I guess finally, I'd say my family and my community, because not to get too arty on you, but uh, T.S. Eliot talks about the still point in a turning world. You know, this idea that you find some place and in his case it was a it was a physical place but for me too you know the community where you live uh, you know the family that are close to you that that really that is a very centering and and very important thing and clearly as you go through your career and 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 shift between careers you rec you recognize how how critical that is to mental health to your success in life and etc so i totally agree well if you were starting this journey all over again what what advice would you give your younger self i think i would tell myself to be a bit more bold a bit less afraid you know, I, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't think I took many risks as a kid. You know, I, I, I had this kind of serendipity that the things I wanted to do were all things that you know adults approved of. You know, and and I, I wish at some level. I mean, I had a good sense of self, a pretty strong sense of self confidence, and you know, a, a healthy ego, hopefully. But I wasn't really mischievous and taking risks, and and I wish I had in a way. I think there would have been more aspects to explore. You know, I, ha I ended up having good friends who did those things, you know, and I would go along for the ride, but I wasn't really, you know, a mischief maker myself. And I, I just wish I'd been a bit bolder or, or taken more risks earlier. So no, that's a good, that's a good point. Well, this is a hard question to ask somebody like yourself who's in education, <laughs> but what one topic do you believe marketers need to be learning more about now, or maybe you're trying to learn more about yourself? Well, actually I, I'm pleased you added that addendum because I think the one thing that all marketers should be 
learning more about, and, and this will sound self-serving, is about this, you know, talent development. You know, what what does this new curriculum for marketers constitute? You know, what what either what should we be teaching ourselves or or what should we be ensuring our teams are equipped to to manage? You know, I do I do think that's a critical, you know, anything in my life that has been about capability building seems to me the more powerful thing to concern yourself with than something very immediate, you know, that that sort of might be faddish or important today, but doesn't build a profound capability. So, so I would say that's, you know, probably always true, but as true as, as at any time, what I personally am trying to understand and it's almost, almost will contradict myself is, is to get my head around the metaverse, to be honest, is, is to understand really how critical is it or in what important ways will it change our experience as consumers and, and change our jobs as marketers what do we need to understand? How do we inform ourselves? How do we engage? How, in our case, how do we teach it? You know, how do we research it? Uh, you know, all the all the kind. What kind of questions should we be asking? What impacts does it have on society? How do we avoid the problems we had with you know, sort of Web 2.0, etc.? I think that's a critical question. And I was in a forum recently where a group of quite senior smart marketers were asked about. The metaverse and there was like dead silence it was really fascinating because i think we're all just trying to figure it out you know and get our head around it so so we're actually at nyusbs our new dean started a thing called the metaverse collaborative and i think it's going to be a very powerful forum because the school you know, I didn't talk as much about this, but the school I teach at has programs in real estate and hospitality and sports management and PR and marketing and HR and finance. You know, so it's this amazing place where you can actually bring a lot of different talented perspectives together, as well as the program, you know, more classic programming, humanities and literature and translation and things like that. So we can bring a lot of people together around this questions. And, and that's what we're we're embarking on in this new metaverse collaborative so no i agree the metaverse is it's evolving and i'm trying to learn about it as well same questions you know how how critical is it i think we've seen early applications in certain industries like fashion and the like entertainment but how does that ripple over to maybe less applicable industries um i've had somebody on not too long ago that was in banking and they were the first or second, I guess, technically, second bank in the metaverse. So what what does that mean? It's interesting. And to your point, like I I hope we can figure out how not to replicate some of the things that we did that weren't so good in the first, you know, web 2.0 uh in web three, but we'll we'll see how everything plays out. It's definitely something to keep your eye on um if you're in marketing. Well um Two more questions for you. One, on a personal side, are there brands or companies or causes that you follow or you think other people should be taking notice of? Yeah, maybe I should talk a bit about some of the causes. You know, I, I'm very troubled by the level of, you know, sort of mistrust and distrust of each other in our society and, you know, how fractious those communications have become and just that what seems like an inability to bring people together and, and have more sensible reason dialogue. And and so, you know, I'm very interested in that. I was at a conference recently, a colleague of mine, Anna Tavis, ran on coaching and the technology impact of coach, you know, coaching is this, you know, wonderfully burgeoning field. And I was speaking to one of the business leaders she she brought and, and I was asking him, you know, could you take your kind of coaching skills, highly distributed and you know, on some wonderful platform and, and start to get groups of people together and, and coach them collectively. You know what I mean? Not, not to be better executives, but just to be better citizens. You know, so I think there's some 
opportunity in the in the near to medium term to leverage technology, uh, not in the way, unfortunately, it has been used, you know, to basically enrage us and divide us, but, you know, seeing there's ways to figure out how to bring people together. That That's sort of, I mean, other than thinking about it, I'll be candid, I haven't done a lot about it, but I think the issue that we're at working very actively on as well is this, you know, how to build a more inclusive and diverse community uh, at the school and enfranchising more people in what we do, finding, you know, scholarships, finding just connections to 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 groups of, of, of talented marketers and data scientists and what have you, you know, in places that we're not traditionally looking. And so that is, you know, occupied my mind for a while. And Brands, you know, I mean, I think I'm very interested in a lot of the innovation around uh, digital health, sorry, health generally, but, you know, the whole world of quantified self. And and again, I, I guess it's a technology themed one, but what happens when we have products and services that can give us this constant feedback and provide us insight, uh, you know, to our own habits or health or, you know, help with mental health or any, any series of those things. I'm, I'm quite impressed by a lot of companies I see in that space. Yeah, no, it's definitely interesting. And, uh, you know, I hope we can find tech. I hadn't thought about technology, using technology to bring people together. Maybe we, that feels like it's solvable somehow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that was the insight I had sitting at this conference because these wonderful companies, I think Ezra was the chap I was talking to, this wonderful company that they, they you know, they can create these platforms that seem to have been very effective and big companies are paying them to train their people and, you know, orient, you know, that maybe we could use, you know, that kind of scale. And maybe that relates to the metaverse, you know, to go back to the metaverse. Maybe that's a place you can sort of bring people together in a more controlled way and 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 sort of have them, you know, work through scenarios and, you know, and I think that storytelling more generally, which is one of the powers of of marketing. A PR, you know, if we're going to put that to work for the good of society, which I think, you know, to some extent we all want to do, you know, we, we would like to make money for our businesses and grow. And, but we also want to profoundly help shape, you know, the future of this, of the, of the world we live in, you know, so I think maybe the metaverse and technology provide some of those opportunities uh, to do that. Well, last question for you. What do you think is either the largest opportunity or threat to marketers today? Well, you know, it's funny, you know, given I just spent time talking about the metaverse, I think one of the things I always, always worry about is marketers love to sort of chase shiny objects. You know, I think sometimes that I worry, and I guess perhaps I worry more about, you know, are we training people in this sort of really complex world to still ask these kind of foundational questions about impact and importance. And, you know, one of the greatest benefits, you know, going back to our advisors and, you know, the other wonderful marketers you've had on your show, and I, I've had the privilege to sort of work with or talk to, is they, they tend to go back to fundamentals. You know, they tend to say they're not in any way, you know, sort of Luddites, they're not rejecting technology, they're not rejecting ideas, but they're going back to fundamental questions about consumer preference and consumer needs and what problem does this solve and those kind of questions. And I and I, I think we need to ensure that we train a generation of, of marketers or, you know, that are both aware and current and fluent with the new, but also have the capacity to discern and evaluate and ask those foundational questions, you know, and, and understand real impact and importance. So, so that, that I think is, you know, possibly an opportunity and or a threat. No, I agree. And I, it gets back to critical thinking. Like, are we, are we critical thinkers or not? And, um, and your point about fundamentals of consumer behavior, consumers don't 
change as much as we think they will, you know, or as fast as fast as we think they will. That that's probably the the accurate way to say that. Um, they do change. Hundred percent right, Alan. You know, you you know, I read a I read a sort of brief recently about you know things that were changing and you know how consumers are very different. But at the same time, you'll read reports that Gen Z are, you know, they're buying vinyl record players and they're going back to brands from the, you know, from the 50s and 60s. And, you know, they're, they're seeking a form of authenticity that they don't necessarily find in, in technology. And so I think it's more about how we respond, how we interpret the signals First, it's to figure out what the signals are and what what's noise. Then it's how we interpret and respond to those signals, you know. And and they and the answers don't all have to be bright, shiny objects. I guess is is kind of what I'm saying. Well, I've really enjoyed this conversation, Michael. Thank you so much for coming on and telling us what you're doing at NYU and and all the great work that you're doing. Yeah, well, check out it's uh, sbs.nyu.edu backslash execms, E-X-E-C-M-S. And we'd love to see some of you in the program. So, I love it. We'll send them your way. All right, my friend. Thank you so much. A great talking to you. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with support from my team and podcast editors, sound engineers, and writers at Share Your Genius. Find them at shareyourgenius.com. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe on marketingtodaypodcast.com and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners. You can contact me on marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you will also find complete show notes, links to what was discussed in the episode today, and you can search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today.